Welcome to School of Everything Else. Stranger Things 3 and 2. This was an unexpected show to put together. It started with what was supposed to be just a 30-minute, fairly light, Patreon-exclusive quick review of Season 3. That recording went much longer and deeper than expected. And then despite what we said on that recording, we went on to watch all of Season 2 again because people were asking why we hadn't done 2 since we'd covered 1 in so much depth. That was a 2017 commissioned show and we went all out on it full complement of guests, guest guests. We did all eight episodes in turn and had to put it out as a two-parter. The works. Something we definitely hadn't planned to do here. But since Lyra needed to catch up and she was a few years older, we watched two with her and got a whole new perspective on Stranger Things in retrospect of three as well, recording a further hour. While all this was going on, I was temporarily losing my sense of hearing. It happens every few years and this one is pretty bad. I have to wait another week to get it cleared up, but I can barely hear conversations right now. Everyone has to speak loudly for me to catch what's being said, and I have to be looking at them so I get the benefit of lip reading. That makes it hard to edit to my usual standards. I have to do it with headphones, and it's turned up to 11, and it definitely makes it hard for me to watch and analyze media and then talk about it again to my usual high standards. Add to that the dreaded arm pain came back on the left elbow and to a lesser extent the right and I'm thinking it might be the early signs of arthritis. I'm waiting on a visit to a different GP to see if I can get a second opinion on that and it scares the shit out of me. Plus we've got a heat wave in the UK right now which means nobody is sleeping and everyone is delirious and our daughter is off school and needs engagement so I'm definitely not at my best right now for podcasting. So rather than forcing through with the remaining commissions for this season and making an inferior version of what we might do, we're going to wait with them for the next few weeks until I am back to fighting fitness. Meanwhile, I have some extremely fun banked shows I can start editing together to put out in the interim, including next week's Food Fight. I've been waiting to put this episode out for so long, just the right time. It's the worst animated film I've ever ever seen. It's quite an episode. You'll love it. Don't watch the film, whatever you do. Or do, but don't say I didn't warn you. But we will start here with the often requested Stranger Things 3 and 2 in that order. Here it is at last, folks, a show we recorded by mistake. Remember, everything said on this episode about Stranger Things 3 was before we'd rewatched Stranger Things 2. So it's hard to remember Stranger Things 2. All I can recall is that uh, I went from 
disliking Steve to liking Steve. He redeemed himself with a baseball bat. Yes. And, and I was like, oh, Sean Astin, he's great, actually. I really like him. Oh, he's dead. And he's dead. Um, I remember Will being rather MacGuffin-y in that he was being moved around from place to place and they were trying not to let the bad thing get him. Yeah. Okay, so the first season of Stranger Things, we had a lot of richness to get into. Mm. We had a lot of... Uh, you know, novelty value and at the same time nostalgia value to mine this mysterious new world. And also, it in itself was a complete presentation. It was a beginning, a middle, and an end made without really thinking there'll be a two, a three, a four, a five, a six. They made effectively an eight hour movie, a really, really good one that has. There was a wholeness to the fact that at the beginning, Will is snatched away and Eleven comes out into the world and at the end will is rescued from the darkness and l sacrifices herself to achieve that there was a beauty and a, a melancholy and a, a majesty in that and the second season was about recovery after that level of trauma so there's a lot to do with will there mm. a bunch of characters who had previously gotten a lot of mileage out of my son slash my brother uh, slash my best friend is missing and I don't know if we can get him back went to now he's back how do we get on with our lives mm. and so there was stuff going on there but like I said I don't really remember it particularly sharply I know that there was a lot of they swapped the Demogorgon for a bunch of Demo dogs mm -hmm. little aliens versions there was a lot of comparisons between alien and aliens uh, but for me, uh, Aliens is, is more than just the superficiality of going from one alien to a bunch of aliens. There was the protecting mother aspect, uh, which actually, if you think about it in Aliens, it's protecting mother versus avenging mother because the queen. Is the avenging mother, yeah. So I, I don't like to make that kind of comparison lightly. Um, so now in this third one, they don't have the melancholy. They don't have the recovery after trauma. And they kind of only lightly touch upon the fact that Joyce is missing Sean Astin and feels guilty about that, although that does inform upon her behaviour. So what they have instead is a bunch of wacky comedy, which is fine. Which a lot of people seem to really appreciate. One thing that popped into my head during the episode where they're watching Back to the Future, funnily enough, is that uh, their dedication to nostalgia is such that they appear to have nicked Back to the Future's reviews. Like, the first one, everybody loves. The second one, some people really love, some people really didn't like. And the third one, I've seen people say, this is my favourite season ever, and I've seen people say, maybe not so much. Hmm. Understandable. I would say that Stranger Things as a whole peaked... Not with the first season, but with the trailer for the second season, the one which had the remix of Thriller in it. That, following on from everything we'd experienced in the first, made various, not so much promises, but pledges mm. to, you know, this is what we're so going to do. So it was the anticipation. It, yeah, there was this was anticipation of there being more, mm. returning to the friends that we had actually started to really engage with, mm. the idea that this thing that was just one could be two, and all of this mysterious imagery, you know, like burned out pumpkins and, 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 and uh, you know, shadows moving and, and this, this Cthulhu thing in the sky. And then, you know, the kids riding on bikes and just it felt like shit was going down. And then, obviously, the idea of L coming back, even if it did technically undo the end of the first season, 
it felt like something you couldn't miss. Mm. Like this is some like now that we've experienced season one, we have to be there for season two. So in season three, since the only character that really departed in that second season, as far as I can remember, was a brand new character created just to die, like a pig for slaughter. It felt more like it was balancing things out in a kind of a, okay, so this is, you know, the further adventures of Stranger Things. And to a degree, they kind of do that here as well. Like, they don't actually want to take out anyone's favourite character in case they pull a bob. To that end, there are a couple of new characters who are like, did you just, like, expand these guys to feature length because you figured the people would suddenly love them? Uh, that there's one character in particular who gets a lot of airtime we'll talk about in a second. But for the purposes of our quick review, I will state for the record that TV is not really my medium. Mm-hmm. I've said it once or a hundred times before, but while watching Stranger Things 3, I just kept feeling, I wish this was just a two-hour movie that we could watch on an evening and love, and it would be called Stranger Things 3. That that would be it. Not eight hours that we have to watch over three nights. I don't like it when TV goes on and on and on and there's so many events and there's so much this and there's so much that and there's so much content that we then can't talk about it. Mm. Not on, on a podcast normally. Like we, when we did Stranger Things 1, we had to go for two massive shows yeah, and to really do it justice. That's why we don't do TV. It is difficult. I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure whether this is something I've struggled with so much before but it certainly was this time, and I don't know whether it was just the state of mind I was in, but I did find it difficult to maintain emotional engagement with this one. Partly because of tone issues. If this was a two-hour movie, they could keep it focused so that they're just giving you what you need. But there's so much whimsy and so much flab and so much extra... Mm. Not not flab. Flab suggests that it shouldn't be there at all, but just so much extra that... It ended up around the middle end veering between feeling really sad and all really scared and just silliness, which is like, oh, this is just adorable, which I didn't dislike the silliness, but it meant that I was like, okay, I'm getting no tension from this bit where it's clearly supposed to be drawing tension. Yeah, I think part of... I can't buy it. Part of the issue there was that they had... Because they split everybody up and then you see what's happening with everybody's individual storylines... If everyone's storylines were following the same tension pattern, that would be fine because you would cut back from this tension to this tension to this tension and then you'd get the out-breath and then you would cut back back to this relax and this relax and that relax. Which if you did that with four Marvel movies, for example, that tend to follow a similar pattern... (laughs) There is that. They they would mirror one another in their lines. Yeah, maybe. But, But what actually seemed to be happening here was that you had to sustain... A short moment of tension for this group of people. Then it would cut to this group of people, and they're in a situation that's significantly less tense. Also, it's so like at this point off. we're fighting off this demon from the pit, and then we'll cut back to these two just having a chinwag in a toilet. Mm. It's like okay, and over here you got these Russian guys, and they're at a fun fair. And it's not at all that that it felt like, as you say, that there was flab or those bits didn't need to be there because they are really key mm. in terms of engaging with the characters. But the the thing that it struck me as being the most like is scrolling through Twitter in an evening of an evening. Imagine that you've got, say, half a dozen friends that you follow. All of them very nostalgic. And this evening, all of them have decided that they're going to tell a long, threaded story. Mm. 
But on your timeline, it keeps cutting, cutting back from one them. to the other. Yeah. And their stories are all very different in tone and pace and, and where it goes up and where it goes down. <laughs> and then when they get to the end of the evening, they're like, okay, there's a lot more of this story to tell. We'll come back tomorrow night, shall we? Like, oh, God. There is that. But <laughs> it, and it just... Again, it's not that it's bad, and I'm sure for some people they were very happy with that and and liked that sort of. Back many and forth. many people just love TV. Absolutely, and and for them maybe it's that the engagement with the characters far outstrips how they feel they're responding to the things that were happening. Yeah. But for me, for the first time, seasons one and two did not feel like this for me. It felt like the plot was suddenly the main driver rather than engagement with the characters. In the first the first season, what was happening was a way to bring the characters mm. to the foreground and to show you who they were. Yeah. This third season, there was a transition obviously with the second, this third season is, here's a wacky plot, let's see how the various characters do in this wacky yeah. plot. You know these guys, we don't really need to kind of develop them much other Let's than throw in some new wild cards. To, what's to, changed about yeah. them. We'll, we'll change the combination of who hangs around with whom yeah. and we'll throw in a few wild card new characters to elicit new responses. Yeah. But there are, it's effectively taking these characters you like for a walk. Mm. Four different walks all at the same time. Yeah. And there weren't, I mean, there was one or two things that kind of made me feel like I don't think that character would do that. And really? It was... You can name them now, by the way. This is full okay. spoilers, folks. Right. So the, the main one that had that really frustrated me a little bit because it broke what was supposed to be a very intense and emotional oh, movement. Is this Hopper? It's not Hopper that it's related to Hopper, yeah. but it's not Hopper who's okay. the, the character that felt out of step for okay. me. But they've come out of the thing that's just exploded and burned down. Hopper is ostensibly dead and... At the very end then. Yeah. And Joyce goes up and hugs Will. Mm -hmm. And then Elle comes out and she's looking at her and she's got an expression on her face that says, where's Hopper? And obviously Joyce is trying to communicate to her Hopper Hopper gone. Hopper Hopper didn't make it. Yeah, exactly. And Elle just stands there and looks distraught. And you are not telling me for She's crying. Well, yeah, exactly. You are not telling me for a hot second that Joyce would not go straight over there and hug her. And she doesn't. She just stands there holding Will. Will is fine. They are fine. Will goes through very little. Yeah. Elle is the one who needs support in that moment. And we have seen over and over again through the first two seasons, Joyce offer Elle that support. That is a fine point. I had forgotten that Joyce actually does offer Elle that support. Uh, It accentuates the fact that Elle now doesn't have that parental figure exactly. because Joyce is exactly. hugging Will, but her not, she has no one to hug her. entire world has fallen away again for the yeah. third time. But then she ends up hanging around, like moving with them, yeah. with that family. So, so it's thing. like... But by natural progression, she's going to be going with them anyway. Ergo, all you really care? need to do is have Joyce just wave her over and then draw her into that circle. Yeah. Just hold a hand out to her or something. This little thing, Duffers. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that was the main one. Okay, so the, the four movies intersecting are Loser's Light, because uh, this really does now feel like the TV version of It. It was before It, but then It came along and did It better than Stranger Things did It. It was before the the new It. Yeah. 
Well, it had two old it's to draw on. Let's just say that it was waiting to be it. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen King wrote it on a moth cocoon. Yes, and that now then it emerged and went, "Hi, Georgie." <laughs> anyway, um, so you got the losers' light. Uh, all uh, their call sign uh, is the Griswold family. Mm. Then you got the ice cream sailor squad. Their call mm-hmm. sign being Scoop Troop. Yep. Then uh, Sheriff Magnum P.I. Yes. Like, at the very beginning, Hopper is watching Magnum P.I. And then they have him in this... Um, shirt with a capital S. Hawaiian shirt for the rest of the time. And uh, obviously with the big facial, bushy facial hair, they're kind of accentuating that. Mm-hmm. And um, the, I, I suppose the sign there would be Bald Eagle because of the guy they hook up yeah, with who looks they, like Peter Stormare with a beard. He's the only one that gets a call sign. Technically, Joyce and Hopper don't get one, but Got they're it. with him. So, right, they're yeah. with Bald Eagle. And then there's the Nancy Drew mysteries. I started to really like Nancy in this, and I, I thoroughly approved of her having to work for the Mad Men because a lot of guys watch Stranger Things, and it's nice to be able to put guys in the. Uh, it's not nice. It is useful to be able to put guys in the high-heeled shoes of... Actually, she wears, like, flats, doesn't she? She does wear flats. She very specifically wears flats to allow her to run without twisting her ankles. Uh Aha. It is appropriate to be able to put guys in the shoes of women, forced to wait on shitty guys, Mm. so that their sympathies lie with the women being treated like crap. Yeah, and I particularly, I'm going to say, liked question mark because when I noticed first that it was happening I was like oh I don't think I like this but then gradually I I kind of got what they were doing with it which was that Jonathan became very unlikable here's this boy who was previously the geek previously the outcast Hmm. and he has become a corporate suck-up yeah. Effectively, he's he's now been allowed into the normal world, and he's forgotten what it was that was important yeah. about him before. Way back when we covered Stranger Things one, I was like, Steve, uh, I'm all about Jonathan now. Jonathan, uh, I'm all about Robin." Mm. Um. <laughs> but here's the thing: that whole dynamic and what's going on there got really interesting because now not only has Steve had this great arc from complete tool tool jock jock douchebag he's always Popular a bit skinny to be in a jock but the yeah hair, steve. steve the hair harrington he's he's kind of mutated from that to steve decent human being who is supportive and protective of these kids one of my favorite lines in the whole thing harrington your children are here <laughs> <laughs> i loved that that was amazing but then with everything that kind of develops with robin it's like his nice guyness and, and like a nice guy is a little bit there's an implication there, so I shall say decency. decent human being. Yes. Yeah. Decency his, is a really good word. Absolutely. His decent human beingness continues to come out and then he gets in a position where he is totally not gonna get what he wants out of this situation. Mm-hmm. And he is fine with that. The ability and the swiftness with which he shifts from seeing her a certain way to seeing her another way was, oh, just chef's Chef's kiss. (laughs) Honestly, (laughs) lessons to be learned there. Yeah. Another thing about, like, guys watching this is, like, take note, guys. If, If this happens to you, his response, really pretty good one. Yeah. Totally. All of the stu- all of the awesomeness that he's just described has not changed. Yeah. She still is that. You still get to hang out with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, all, uh, we start at the beginning with the evil Soviets and 
Back in 2007, when Indiana Jones and the uh, Crystal Skull came out, it was like, ah, these Soviets, but they're good, hard-working soldiers, just they're working against America. Let's, let's not hate them. Um, I don't necessarily think that this was saying, you know, drumming up hate for the Soviets, but I was like, Soviets are uh, meddling in American affairs behind the scenes. All right. We've had two seasons of shady American government operatives and their secret psychokinetic spy super soldiers, whatever the hell Eleven was. It actually makes logical sense for America's enemies at the time to be villains in this. Especially as the alternative is... Who? Who? Who do you think? The Libyans! Holy shit! When honest trailers do their trailer for this, it's going to. It, it will. They will point out the fact that the screaming bar on this one, like the the volume level for screaming, has been turned from say a five to a nine. Mm. The amount of screaming in this is it's outrageous. There is a lot. There yeah, is but, a lot. That just. I th- I feel like. They were aware that the horror that they were uh, able to really deal in, there was some sort of gross, almost Cronenbergian, like, melting people bloody horror, occasionally. Mm. Very, like, occasionally. But they were, it was never usually to someone you actually cared about. So it was, it, was, it was gruesome, and then there was that disgusting bite thing with the, the, the pulling the parasite out. There were a couple of bits of horror, but it doesn't have that intensity of what's going to happen and the monsters and the monster kills of the first one and the second one. Hmm. And so it feels like the screaming was there to overcompensate somewhat for the lack of gore and uh, the lack of maybe... The lack of scares because of all the laughter. Mm. You can't build up the scares so much if everyone's laughing all the time and everything's adorable and fun. So the screaming was like, right, okay, now things are bad. Let's go, ah, to make sure that everyone's on board with this Mm. one, which felt a bit, a little forced, a little loud. It was fine when people were able to just chat after that. And there was a lot of chatting, which I love. Uh, It it just, the the screaming stuck out. Also, this is the Rocky Four of Stranger Things series. The amount of flashbacks to previous episodes. And remember this, remember this. Like, it's nostalgia within a nostalgia trip. Yes, there is that. Almost always... Making you nostalgic for earlier Stranger Things stuff. Almost always plot-related. Occasionally shortcuts to reinforce characterisation. Yeah. Uh, It did backfire a little bit with me occasionally mm -hmm. because one of the things that I found grated on me a little bit was the fact that enough time has passed that the kids are now, what, 15, 16? Mm -hmm. But... Oh, they're not 16. Maybe not quite. The actors, maybe. No, 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 the actors, that's what I mean. Okay. But narratively, the kids are about 13, 14. 14. Yeah, it was very Goblet of Fire in the way that the boys were treating the girls. They've they've had to kind of give everybody floppy hair 
and awful hair. Shorts and shirts that are just a little bit too small and make them look even more skinny limbed and yeah. gangly than they are. Oh, you got a button down shirt, better tuck it into those very Absolutely. short shorts. Yep. Um, knee socks. Yep. And um, big flappy trainers. I was that boy in yeah. the 80s with my shorts <laughs> and my button down okay. and my terrible pudding bowl hair. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's oh, no, authentic. No, no. It, it, uh, but it's a good way of, of making them seem very awkward and gangly yeah. and, and and Finn Wolfhard in particular is doing that thing where he's growing into himself he's just not there yet mm. and uh, Will's lilting voice for when he's uh, trying to be DM yeah. kind of just like over like over-egging the geek pudding there. It's not his fault, that's just the actor with his wavering yeah, voice. Yeah, but I did I did feel a little bit like Finn Wolfhard had kind of lost his acting edge. A, a little, little bit. bit. Maybe having having seen him in it as well, oh, he's which great he was it, great yeah. in. And I couldn't quite decide whether it was that his performance had dipped a bit or they just weren't giving him enough to really work with. <sighs> Finn was told you are going to be clueless in this season oh. so much well I'm just assuming because so much of what happens is Eleven says something to him which is totally practical mm. and very honest and he stares at her practically cross-eyed going huh? Huh? he's basically been told you're Scooby-Doo <laughs> Which is fair enough, but it does mean that the boys kind of treat the girls like like they're assholes this time. And so your sympathies go straight to the girls. So Eleven and Max, Mm. totally down with. Nancy, totally down with. I was like, right, okay, so at this stage, you've now got enough girls to make your own losers club. You don't even need the boys anymore. Although, also, I will say that given that the first season in particular and the second to a degree was inordinately focused on Mike mm-hmm. out of the kids group that does mean that this gives Dustin and Lucas a bit of an op- more of an opportunity to shine particularly Dustin mm. the one who I was saying before there's a lot of her mm. is Erica whose role was greatly expanded from seasons two to three. And it annoys me that a girl and a girl of colour would be the person that I say this about because I feel like, no, I should be totally, utterly supporting doubly so in this Mm. scenario. Kind of just does the same thing over and over again, Mm. which is effectively to be really, really obnoxious, but right. You know what this half-baked plan of yours sounds like to me? Child endangerment. We'll be in radio contact with you the whole time. Uh, 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 Child endangerment. Erica, hi. Uh, We think these Russians want to do harm to our country. Great harm. Don't you love your country? You can't spell America without Erica. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oddly, that's uh, totally true. So, so, don't do this for us. Do it for your country. Do it for your fellow man. Do this for America. Erica. Ooh, I just got the chills. Oh, yeah, from this float. Not your speech. I love the fact that they when Dustin levels at her, okay, the whole My Little Pony thing, you're a nerd. And then she gets given the D&D sets at the end. That was great. Well, that- there is There are places for Erica to go, but it felt like they could maybe have just dialed down on the teeth grating a little bit. Mm. Although, to a degree, that's I think that's kind of the point, that the, the a girl in that position, you know, you're younger than everybody around you, you think about things in a way more practical mm. way than the people around you, and yet yeah. their teeth are all on edge, so they're all telling you to shut up and ignoring the very sensible suggestions that you're putting to them. Yeah, but she told them but like the, an asshole. 
But that's yeah, that's the thing. You know, we'll we'll we might listen to you if you can be, you know, nice about if it. If she was a white boy, I would find her intolerable. No, 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 I know, I know. But that's I'm just saying that 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 may have been part of the point. However, that said, I really did like the whole My Little Pony nerd conversation. I liked it when she switched up and got to do something mm. different, and there was a bit more variety in <laughs> how she was. I just want, uh, um, the the white boy equivalent is is the uh, the the nerdy kid from um, uh, Polo Express, the one who looks like a little Greg Troops. <laughs> Um, they always have a nasal voice, don't yeah. they? It's yeah. always got to be in there. I tried to get an audio clip from the Polar Express of the know-it-all kid, but it's all just fucked up memes. <laughs> but, I mean, she's, she was still part of some of my favourite exchanges, mm. so I'm looking forward to seeing where she goes. And again, her presence in the show is doubly empowering, mm. so I'm glad she's there. I just wasn't a massive fan myself. And the fact that she's part of Scoop Troop as well meant that the, the whole dynamic between the four of them and... Uh, one of my favourite bits was when Robin and Steve basically throw themselves at the door and are shouting to Erica and Dustin to run. And it's like, yeah, this is like mum and dad protecting yeah. the kids, which felt really And then they strong. nicely reversed that once the truth serum had Absolutely. kicked in. Absolutely. And so the parents are acting like complete buffoons and the kids are like, what is wrong with that? Are they drunk? <laughs> they sound drunk. That was neat. Um, <laughs> although, interesting, uh, we, we, uh, when it came to them being sat down in the chairs about mm. to be tortured by Russians, I was like... Poor Steve. He's been like where like Robin really wears that sailor suit. Steve looks like a complete knob end mm. and did for the whole like the whole time. The whole time. The whole time. <laughs> the whole time he's wearing that sailor suit. It mm. is off the chain. Yeah. And he was getting punched. And I was like, no one should get punched while wearing that sailor suit for wearing that sailor suit, but not punched while incidentally wearing that sailor suit. Indeed. And that, of course, is the uh, driver behind his retort about, do you think I would wear this if someone wasn't paying me to? But, I mean, anyone who's ever uh, worked uh, for a fast food place or a supermarket and been wear- made to wear a demeaning uniform would be like, yes, yes, that is exactly what they do. How many children are you friends with? And another one bites the dust. You are 046, Popeye. Yeah, yeah, I can count. You know that means you suck. Yep, I can read, too. Since when? You see that table over there to your right? No, your other right. Oh. Yeah, okay. Did you see those scissors? Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I think that if we move at the same time, we could get over there, and then maybe I could kick the table and knock them into your lap. And I could cut the binds. Yeah, and we could get out of here. Got you. Okay, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, we yeah. can totally do that. There's morons. They have scissors in here? Yeah, Those morons. Total morons. <laughs> oh, okay. Speaking of Robin, um, you, you kind of got a little big girl crush on her almost immediately. Yeah. With, <laughs> what elements that did you really like well, about her? Part of it, as you um, so succinctly pointed out, was that she's the sort of slightly too young to be doing this manager of a confectionery type establishment, which was my first job out of university. Yes. You ran a fudge kitchen or you were like the middle manager of a fudge kitchen? I was was the manager of a small satellite branch of uh, a company that makes handmade fudge and sells it off the table. Whereas I, being more like uh, Mike and his idiot friends in this, was the kind of guy who, and I actually once did this, sidled into a a fudge kitchen and went, "Do, do, do you pack the fudge? Yep. Yep, we do. You're a fudge packer then! Ah! And then ran away declaring myself the winner. 
I will point out, by the way, this was not my fudge shop that you came into and did this. Although you did used to come into my fudge shop quite frequently to ask for free samples. Did I mention how much Sharon fixed me? (laughs) I didn't fix you. I just burned off some of the crap. (laughs) (laughs) With a flamethrower, anyway. Oh, my God. Clear history. So, so you felt like you know, like kinship with Robin because yes. she had to deal with a bunch of chodes while yes. selling ice cream to Absolutely. Burks. It also didn't hurt, by the way, that she is the product of two of my favourite '90s actors. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people might not know this. Who is this? Uh, she is the daughter of Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman, and her voice is very much like her mum's, mm-hmm. and her. Eyes. Her eyes are very much like her dad's, but her look overall is a really attractive blend of both of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when then she when she was like, "Nah, man, I'm gay," you were like, <clears throat> "I'm still at the wedding." <laughs> <laughs> Although I was a little bit gutted on Steve's behalf. I, f- I felt a bit Just sorry a for bit. Steve, but I felt the opposite of that because. Him being told you can't be with the girl, but then deciding... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, that's fine. I can still be friends with her, is a far better win than just getting the girl. That's the real prize. Absolutely, and the fact that at the end of it, they're clearly still friends and still hanging out together to the point where she's actively getting him a job with her. You did point out that she uh, she was saying to the slack jawed guy uh, from uh, who was actually the person of indeterminate gender from a series of unfortunate events, which yes. we have yet to finish, by Indeed. the way. Yeah. You know, or you want to get Stephen here? He'll get all the girls in here. And he's like, "What's in it for you?" And she's like, "Well, you know, just you know." And I was like, "Oh, I see." Yes. <laughs> hot girls, yes. many, many hot girls. Absolutely. Otherwise, she has to hang out in a video store populated largely by that sweaty guy. teenage boys. Yeah. She said that like one of her three favourite movies was The Hidden Fortress. Come on, no one's third favourite movie is The Hidden Fortress. Actually, The Hidden Fortress was her second favourite movie. Oh, her other two favourites being Children of Paradise, which I'd never seen, and The Apartment, which is a Billy Wilder film. Absolute fucking stone-cold classic. Everyone watch The Apartment. One of the things I had a bit of a problem with was that I had to actually fight to remember Hopper's character from many years ago. And do you remember? I I was like, was this the character who had a daughter who died? Ergo, his relationship with Elle was informed upon by that past tragedy. They never mentioned it in this, but not just that. They Oh, they did? There's one very brief reference to okay. it. When he's talking to Joyce, he says, after Sarah, yeah. and then tells But he her seems to have completely have gotten but over But beyond that. that, yeah. Before he was a man haunted by that terrible loss. Mm. His impatience with Joyce over her, her grieving the loss of Bob, mm. even if it, it That's is intended weird, yeah. to be like a, just a show... It felt a little bit. That's a situation where, as a writer, you go, okay, so you've got these two characters, both of whom have lost someone. That's when you bring them together with this commiseration. Yeah. And it it does come back in with the letter at the end. He talks about it in the letter, so it's obvious that it's not something that they've forgotten. But but his behaving like an, not a shit dad to Elle, but just a kind of standard doofus dad with the whole three inches minimum on the doorway kind of being a bit of a hard ass around her and shoving uh, Mike away metaphorically but also kind of physically as well and saying uh, 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 my daughter it came off as 
like, well, he hadn't had the practice because his daughter never reached this age, and so he's not gone through this period. But at the same time, it was like, but but you went through the earlier stuff mm. that, that he just seemed to be so gleefully unwilling mm. to do well, the the meeting them halfway I thing. I think part of it is sort of that implication that, again, they do round out at the end, and the, the whole thing about he he didn't want to properly open up and allow their relationship to become a, a connected one because it was too painful and he couldn't recognise any of those feelings at all. But it was just a bit difficult to see that. Yeah. It felt like there were a f- too few scenes of him and Elle together actually talking yeah. to really sell that ending, which I don't believe for even a second. I can't buy it, and it sucks, because if I actually felt like that was a, a death, as opposed to a, well, there was a thing about to explode, and then there was a gateway to hell right there, and then the whole, you know, don't bring the American out at the end. Like, it's, okay, so it's that. And I felt sad for everyone else, but I couldn't feel it sharply in my heart mm. the way I should have yeah. for that level of loss. Mm. The, uh, uh, the the way I would compare it is I'm assuming that the statute of limitations on Harry Potter is well off. Oh, yeah. Right, okay. So the, the whole thing with Snape, mm-hmm. right? Alan Rickman was told at the very beginning of the of the series yeah by Joe this is what's going to turn out to be the thing with Snape okay so that he could allow that to motivate his performance throughout the whole thing okay and it almost felt like they hadn't told David Harbour mm. that this was the underpinning motivation for his character until the very end I also wondered whether um, he went off and did Hellboy or sorry um, Rise of the Blood Queen featuring Hellboy mm. during filming of this or just before or just after so they may have had to be like well if this thing's a huge huge success and he's Hellboy for the next 20 years then uh, we need to possibly not be able to get David Harbour back so we need to get climax where he's written out of the story but with a back door literally to get him back in again if we need to so maybe the whole thing about not the American uh, was, was just tacked yeah. on. But the fact that they, they as, you, as you said, Sharon, they, they brought in four extras to come and stare at the shiny light thing at the end just so they could obliterate them on a cellular level to show you what wasn't happening with Hopper. Yeah. It was like, oh, okay, I see what you're doing there. That's fine. Like I, I don't mind them doing that. But, it's but very comic book. Do that with some of the Russian soldiers who at least we know yeah. are already there. Don't have these random people just <laughs> walk in purely to do that with because you're not really going to grasp what's happening to them because the first thing that pops into your head are who are these people and why are they here all of a sudden the mum from the room comes in who are these characters and what are they doing (laughs) indeed yeah you want to trade (laughs) that's ridiculous why can't I just mow oh you've got to be shitting me yeah but okay what if we split it split it with what does that even make sense isn't this a nice surprise what are you doing here? Shopping. This is her new style. What do you think? What's wrong with you? You know she's not allowed to be here. What is she, your little pet? Yeah. Am I your pet? What? No! And why do you treat me like garbage? What? You said Nana was sick. She is. She is. She is sick. sick. Yeah, she's sick. sick. She's sick. She's super sick. That's why we're here, actually. Yeah, yeah, we're shopping. Not for us, but for her, for Nana. For Nana. Also, we're here to get a gift for you. 
We just we couldn't find anything that suited you, and I only have like three dollars and fifty cents, so it's hard, super hard. It's, it's expensive. You lie. Why do you lie? I dump your ass. Can we play D&D? &D? No. Uh, the costumes in this, I, I have to point out, were fan-bloody-tastic. In particular, Elle's wardrobe. The fact that she wore basically OR scrubs and a weird, creepy Victorian doll dress in the first season. She is making up for lost time by wearing fabulous outfits, which photograph really, really well. And the cinematography, uh, something Bob said about um, the uh, uh, Spider-Man Homecoming and Far From Home director being quite pedestrian and, and directing everything like a Disney Channel um, TV movie about teenagers. I was like, oh, no, that, that can't be the case. And I watched it, I was like, honestly, it's not particularly, there's nothing massively striking in that direction. But how do you do that with teenagers? And then I watched Stranger Things 3 and I was like, oh, all these weird Dutch angles and, uh, um, you know, like close-ups and, and pulling the camera here and like really bright um, and stark contrasts. And yeah, they totally, the, they, the direction in this by the Duffer Brothers and whoever they had helping them mm. uh, was first rate. It's extremely cinematic, mm. kind of transcends TV. Yeah, yeah. I think... You're right, the cinematography, everything looked great. Uh, one issue I had was the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not the soundtrack that I had the issue with because the music that they chose for it was all great. A lot of all, Madonna, great yeah, stuff. All very 80s and really kind of evoked that feeling of Artful of use of uh, the Back to the Future theme and then yep. Never Ending Story, which, is, which was lovely. That was gorgeous, loved <laughs> that completely. Um, but I really felt the absence of the Stranger Things music. It was still there. It, it was just there, wasn't but it brooding. Was, it was very, and... Yeah, exactly. And I honestly think that that's probably a big part of what helped with my emotional engagement for the first two. Yeah. A sense of if you step outside this particular fire circle, there's all kinds of shit out there, Techno technologically based, but also supernatural, yeah. that you just... Like, the, the death of Barb was a really great way of showing this is what happens if you are... Mm. Alone. This yeah. is what happens if you are unprepared, unprotected. And in part... And so that, there was that menace. Yeah, that, that slight, that wariness and that nervousness and edginess that came with the, the music and how that was previously infused through the scenes mm. gave it a sort of a feeling of something like The X-Files or... The Outer Limits yeah. or something like that. And that, I think, was, was a little bit what I, I felt was not there so much. And I don't necessarily think that um, it, you need to be killing people or characters left, right and centre to actually oh God, no. um, sell that danger. Again, with Harry Potter, um, mm. they after the th uh, third one, they killed at least one ma you know, major character per story. Mm. 
But in the case of Harry Potter, as time went on, it took more and more of a psychological toll on everyone. Whereas with this, it's actually taking less and less of a psychological toll on Mm. everyone, which is a weird direction to go in. And there's, there's scenes where it almost seems like, excuse me, where they've gone out of their way to set up a threat but then they'll do something to to somewhat undermine that threat and I couldn't quite put a finger on why like you pointed out the scene where Billy turns up in the car mm. and then proceeds to sit there for 20 minutes not doing anything it was weird at the end at the, the mall when they're like oh my god we're going to the mall and then over there rawr, is Billy sitting in the car in the middle of a completely deserted car parking lot oh shit he's gonna he's gonna ram him and then he just sat there and then they came out again 24 minutes later and he still sat there and then he decides to ram him and it's like he couldn't have got out of the car and gone looking for them Mm. So under those circumstances, introduce him that second time. Mm. Yeah. There were also problems with Billy as well. Do you want to vent on Billy? Mm. I have always had problems with Billy. I had problems with Billy when he first turned up in the second season. Yeah. Part of my problem with Billy, and this is nothing against Dacre Montgomery. I'm sure he's a very nice guy. He was a great Jason was, in Power Rangers. Yeah, he was great in Power Rangers. And it actually weirded me out when I realised that he that this was the same actor because in Power Rangers he's really kind of... Well, he, his first defining act, apart from um, stealing a cow, uh, well, which his friend... Sorry, stealing a bull, which his friend wanks off. This is a Power Rangers movie, guys. Uh, is... <laughs> Is to protect a young nerd. Yeah, he's a which he's is a an very endearing sort of trait. Upstanding, all-American type guy, albeit with a bit of a criminal record. But um, but the the thing with Billy was that they were kind of it. It almost felt like they were placing him, and then even more so in season three, as this dangerous bad boy who everything with ovaries in the town falls over themselves to drool on. Those ladies were panting after they him. They really were. And it was a neat, the problem. It was a neat reversal of the Phoebe Cates music yes. turning up from Fast Towns at Ridgemont High. It was. And of course, they constantly reference Phoebe Cates because yeah. Justin is always saying... I don't know, it's like three his, times she gets mentioned. Yeah, his, his new girlfriend Susie is like Phoebe Cates. Who, she did look a bit like Phoebe Cates. She did, yes. And then they have Phoebe Cates at the hmm. stand, the Fast Times at Ridgemont High stand at the video store. She the looked end. more like Phoebe Cates in Gremlins. Yes. Yes. Yes, she did, rather than Phoebe Cates in first times. But yeah. Yeah, so the, the he's set up as this kind of you're drawn to him but you don't know why, and he's a bad boy and you're not meant you know you're not meant to, but that, that sort of forbidden element makes him all the sexier. Here's the problem Ugh. though. There's a field of nine feet of ew, not if you paid me around this guy that just made me think this right, this is what happens when male writers try to create a character that women fawn over but they themselves cannot understand why. It's like, well, the appeal is obviously in the fact that he's a bad boy. But here's the thing. When women are attracted to bad boys, it's not just the fact that they're bad, but it's the fact that they can see there's something else there that's kind of underneath the bad boy. Something that is... A vulnerability? Yeah, possibly. I mean, it's going to be different for every woman, ultimately. But the the point being that it's... The whole guy's looking at, you know, well, I don't understand why women go for this. It must be because of the hair and the muscles. It's probably not the hair and the muscles. If, If they really have that many women following them around, there is something else that you, a straight man who is not attracted to him, is not seeing. And 
Billy lacked that in entirety for me. I felt bad for little Billy. I'd felt bad for little Billy since the scene in season two where his dad grabbed him around the throat and shoved him up against the wall. Yeah, his dad was a piece of shit. And he also, I don't, did his dad die in that first, what, second season? Because we, I don't think we ever saw him no, in this. No, I don't think we do. But Who's Max living with? Yeah, good question. Seriously. And if that's the case, then who does Max end up living with at the end? Because presumably then she was living with Billy. Mm. But, it, but then we lose Billy as well. So, yeah, as a, as a human being, I felt sorry for him and I was sympathetic for, for his what had got him to that position in the first place. But then the fact that he spends the entire season not really being Billy anyway. Yeah, he's effectively left an, an alien host. But then he seems to take a particular interest in doing what he does. Yeah. And he also looks like such a ratty little creep with that mullet, that wet mullet, always wet, and that little moustache. I mean, honestly, I did kind of get where Karen Wheeler was coming from because Ted is so boring. Mm. And she clearly, that relationship is not satisfying her on any level, any level. I was really worried for Karen because uh, some asshole uh, at Rotten Tomatoes decided to publish an article called uh, Stranger Things 3, Is Blank Really Dead? Uh, who I now realise that must have been about Jim Hopper. Mm. Uh, and the answer is no, obviously, of course he's not dead, you plum. Uh, but <laughs> See, weirdly, when you told me that, what my brain filled in was the Mind Flayer, because they had an entire conversation at the beginning yeah. of this one about the fact that they thought he was dead after the second one, and now he apparently isn't. Now, it's not really a spoiler to say there's a death at the end of this season of Stranger Things. It's not. It, that's too vague. But it did make me look at each of these characters and as we were going through, think, what reason would they have to kill this person? What reason would they have to kill this person? And also to leave it question mark. Mm. Uh, and uh, I, I was worried about Mike's mum. I was like, especially after she almost gives into temptation with Billy and then decides against it, does the decent thing, and then gives um, Nancy a fantastic pep talk. Yes, that was great. I was like, shit. are they Because that would obviously affect both Nancy and Mike, two of the core characters. Mm. And also, it, it would. I'm assuming they wouldn't, they wouldn't have a go out cheaply so it would probably be a moment of supreme heroism for a mother figure uh and eventually ended up being jim hopper doing what jim hopper does well in this case kicking a soviet terminator analog in the face until he explodes but honestly it feels like the the best way to uh, um title your buzzfeed articles is let's talk about the ending of stranger things 3 yeah you know mm. just be really non-specific I liked the inclusion of New Coke, and uh, clearly they were being sponsored by uh, uh, New Coke to some degree, because Coke themselves came back with New Coke. Uh, it was apparently, like, we all, a piece of pop culture lore is that Coke brought out New Coke in uh, 1985 because people were taking blind taste tests and going, nah, I like this Coke instead. And it's like, well, that's Pepsi. We need to make a sweeter alternative to Coke. Right, okay. They were looking at that entirely the wrong way round, mm -hmm. okay? In blind taste tests, people prefer your competitor. But when they can see your marketing, they, they buy your, your product anyway, mm -hmm. even though 
taste-wise, they prefer the other one. That is weird, isn't it? Stick with what you've got. Clearly what they're paying for is the name, so why mess? So they created this new Formula Coke and everyone hated it. Uh, so almost immediately they bought, they bought out uh, Coke Classic and then suddenly everyone started buying Coke like crazy. Oh, okay, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't at all because they thought they needed new Coke. It was so that they could take it away and encourage everybody to drive them. A lot of people have assu- uh, assumed that that was the reason Coke have fervently denied that. Um, also, specifically, clearly they, they kind of wanted to keep what became rebranded as Coke 2 around anyway, because mm. it was around until 2002, 17 years after their failed experiment. Mm. And then they brought it back out again in celebration of Stranger Things 3. How do you even drink that? Because it's delicious. What? It's like Carpenter's The Thing. The original is the classic. No question about it. But the remake? (sighs) Sweeter. Bolder. Better. You're insane. So, you prefer the original thing? What? No, I'm not talking about the thing. I'm talking about New Coke. It's the same concept, dude. Uh, actually, it's not the same concept. It is the same concept. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Hey! Sorry. In reality, classic Coke that we all love is John Carpenter's The Thing. The 2011 prequel remake is New Coke. You know, the new Coke that they should have left all the practical effects in instead of pasting them over with CG. And the original The Thing from Another World from 1951 is the original Coca-Cola recipe made from, uh, it says here, cocaine, birch bark and ink. Because people were fucking weird back then. Again, Lucas doesn't have enough to do. No, he doesn't. But I did like the development of his relationship with Max. I liked the fact that the interactions between them meant that we got to see more characterization of those two, which was a bit thin on the ground previously. Yeah. There was a general vibe of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yes. They weren't being coy about that. It was almost immediate. There was the whole pod people. The point when they're both going... Like, and they really held on that scream for a long time when that poor old woman was just going, ah, and they were, the bit when they go to the old woman's house and, and she sort of lets them in, and I was like, uh, this is that bit in It. I bet the uh, guys who made It Chapter 2 are pleased that they put that scene in the teaser trailer so that when that happens in It Chapter 2, people can go, actually, that was in the book. It wasn't, they weren't copying Stranger Things 3. Yeah. Coming to a loony old lady's uh, house and then bad stuff happens. Mm. It feels like they're late for It 1, but they're early for It 2, yeah, if that makes sense. there is that. And I mean, I, I, they're not, they're not coy about the nostalgia element. It's not intended that you should not see their mm. influences worn on their sleeve. The idea yeah. is that, that they should be uh, recognised for how well they've mm. pulled off the references and, and homages. Particu- mm. I mean, the Evil Dead ones in this yeah. were uh, prominent and great. Yeah, <laughs> uh, But uh, Body Snatchers was always riffing on Robert Highland's The Puppet Masters, which is a line in The Faculty, mm. where they're riffing on Body Snatchers, riffing on Puppet Masters, and they mention both of those. Mm. And this was riffing on The Faculty quite a lot. Mm. Like, the whole, you know, the the... the 
hello mother hello father i missed you during my uneventful absence like the the people seem fine but they're pod people mm-hmm. obviously that's in body snatches but it's done to that kind of starey eyed like oh shit effect in the 1999 film by Robert Rodriguez, The Faculty, that everyone's forgotten. And actually, if you like Stranger Things, would be a really neat little um, side project to go check out. And it's over in an hour and 50 minutes. Indeed. That big thing that chases Nancy down the corridor is basically the final beastie from The Faculty. They've deliberately paid homage to the practical effects used there. I love it. I love them both. Early appearance of Josh Josh Hartnett. Yes. And uh, uh, pre-Lord of the Rings, Elijah Wood. And Famke Janssen. Before, pre X Men, pre X Men, when she wasn't playing a goody two shoes and actually got to, actually she got to veer between goody two shoes and on a top. Mm. Okay, Stranger Things two, as promised on last week's episode, we finished two, three, and we were like, well, we can't go back and watch two. There's eight hours of the damn thing. We got other stuff to do, but then we remembered that Lyra hasn't actually seen it yet, so we could feasibly coincide the two and therefore catch ourselves up to make us as up-to-date on this series as possible. And it's feasible that moving forward we will do this for Stranger Things 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, blah, 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 blah. But we've done the big one on our main feed, so this is all just kind of um, uh, team updates like in FIFA. Mm. Yeah, well, they've... they've- pretty much solidified the concept by this point Mm. it's just adding um dlc at this stage (laughs) (laughs) aka most tv anyway uh let's start with that trailer because it was masterfully done and uh it's the best way of getting you back into the groove of uh stranger things 2 nothing's gonna go back to the way that it was not really I saw something. What is it? I don't know. I felt it. Everywhere. Darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. Creatures crawl in search of blood to terrorize y'all's neighborhood. Whosoever shall be found. Sometimes I feel like I still see you. Must stand and face the hounds of hell and rot inside a corpse's shell. Whatever is happening is spreading from this place. What is it want? Not me. Okay, so now we're going to be jumping all over the place for this one. I'm going to be talking about bits that I liked from Stranger Things 2, little bits that I forgot from Stranger Things 3, and obviously since we're now seeing 2 in retrospect of 3, it kind of makes sense to 
I now have a different appreciation of Stranger Things again to how I felt at the end of three. Mm. I like it more now because two's really strong. It's a really strong dramatic piece. And I go back to what I said about three being a little bit goofy, Mm. a little bit too goofy for its own good in that it takes away a little of the stakes and it feels less, it feels less like a straight drama because they're very aware that it's adorable. And I keep using that word, but like it's comforting to now go to Stranger Things. This is going to be the thing people remember from the Trump administration that was survivable. Like mm-hmm. they, they remember that the 80s were shit, but this makes the 80s fun. And then we managed to get through this horrible administration by looking back to the 80s. This makes the 80s look like House Party 2. <laughs> yeah, more on that in a bit. Mm. Uh, but I'm going to start, start off with the Ghostbusters situation because this is one of the things they showcased in the uh, opening. It's set in 1984, so their Halloween costumes are naturally Ghostbusters. And the easiest throwaway in the world is to have Lucas be Winston and nobody say shit about it. Mm. Lucas turns up with Venkman on his uh, badge and uh, gets into a fight with um, Mike about it. Because he doesn't want to be Winston, and the way that it's put across is they don't make the best use of Winston in Ghostbusters. He turns up late. He actually gives a great argument for why Winston is not the one that the kids want to be. He turns up late. He's not funny. Mm. Poor Ernie Hudson. But yeah, Ernie Hudson is really funny. (laughs) He is, and he he just doesn't have like what Lucas says absolutely stands not only for Ghostbusters but Mm. Ghostbusters too. Uh, the, the, remember that court scene where Winston turns up and like is like, oh, you guys have been arrested. Yep, seems like a bad situation. See you guys later. And then leaves again. It's like, you don't get to play with the Ghostbusters, Winston. Uh, fuck that. It was originally going to be Eddie Murphy way back in the day. Yeah, Lucas not wanting to just be relegated to their token Winston. Mm. Neat. And they don't really resolve it, but I thought about... Honestly, I don't really think Mike Spinkman either... <laughs> Uh, well, no, I mean, I said to you, none of them really are Venkman. None of them are cynical enough to be Venkman. Yeah. Technically, they are all aspects of Ray. Yeah. They, none of them really have the, the knowledge to be Egon. Egon. The, the super deep knowledge and the, like, the total, like, almost inhuman uh, uh, yeah. way that Ramus performed him. They have a vague appreciation of the supernatural and lots of enthusiasm. That makes them all Ray. And I concluded that the biggest smartass of the group is actually Max. Yes. Max would be their Venkman, yes. (laughs) And she takes a while to actually become... And at the time, she's not part of their group, although she does turn up dressed as Michael Myers, which is neat. And Lyra was like, I got that. I understood that reference, because she'd seen Halloween. Mm. Um, I'm now showing Lyra some classic horror movies that are above her pay grade, and I'm having to fast-forward through the really grisly bits. So, for example, when Mike Myers kills his sister at the beginning of Halloween, she doesn't need to see the specifics of that. I just need to go, blah, 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 blah. He kills his sister. And she went, why? And I was like... We still don't don't know. know. We don't know. (laughs) Isn't it scarier when you don't know? No, it's not. It's annoying. And I was like, I totally agree. (laughs) Do you know what? It's not scary to me that Mike Myers... Yeah, baby, that Michael Myers killed his sister and we don't know why. It's scary to me that people voted for Trump as a joke. And we still don't know why. And we do know why. (laughs) (laughs) The shadow monster. We got Will the day in the field. 
The doctor said it was like a virus. It infected him. And so this virus, it's connecting him to the tunnel? So the tunnels, to the monsters, to the upside down, to everything. Whoa, whoa, slow down, slow down. Okay, so if the shadow monster's inside everything, and if the vines feel something like pain, then so does Will. And so does Dart. Yeah, it's like what Mr. Clark taught us. The hive mind. Hive mind? A collective consciousness. It's a super organism. And this is the thing that controls everything. It's the brain. Like the mind flayer. What? The mind flayer. What the hell is that? It's a monster from an unknown dimension. It's so ancient that it doesn't even know its true home. Okay, it enslaves races of other dimensions by taking over their brains using its highly developed psionic powers. Oh my god, none of this is real. This is a kid's game. No, it, it, it's a manual, and it's not for kids. And unless you know something that we don't, this is the best metaphor. Analogy. Analogy. That's what you're worried about. Fine, but an analogy for understanding whatever the hell this is. Okay, so this mind flamer thing. Flayer, mind flayer. What does it want? To conquer us, basically. You know, it, it believes it's the master race. Uh, like the like the Germans. Uh, the, the Nazis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Nazis. Uh, if the Nazis were from another dimension, to totally. Uh, it views other races like us as inferior. Itself. It wants to spread and take over other dimensions. We are talking about the destruction of our world as we know it. That's great. That's great. That's really great. Okay, so if this thing is like a brain that's controlling everything, then if we kill it, we kill everything it controls. We win, theoretically. All right, great. So how do you kill this thing? Shoot it with fireballs no, or something? No, 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 fi no fireballs. Uh, you summon an undead army uh, because... Because the zombies, you know, they, they don't they don't have brains, and the mind, the mind flayer it 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 likes brains. It's just a game. It's a game. What the hell are we doing here? Uh, we watched a thing on uh, um, Stranger Things and it and uh, the power of nostalgia uh, by Lindsay Ellis, and she pointed out quite rightly that this version of the '80s has all of the difficult edges sanded off, all of that shitty behaviour in the Monster Squad, which we'll probably do a show on. I feel like, should we do that before or after the Goonies? It feels like maybe Goonies first, because that's like the high-profile thing, and Monster Squad was like the fucking Kmart of Goonies. Yeah, I resemble that remark, but yeah. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> they are queer-bashing throughout that film. They are also fat-shaming. It is rotten with fat-shaming and queer-bashing. Not. They make the Goonies seem positively warm. Yeah. Yeah, there's some unpleasant. Oh, and their attitude to women. The only reason I bring this up is because that's honestly probably a little bit too close to how mm -hmm. kids fucking were in the 80s. Rotten little shits. And in the 90s and in the 2000s. But kids don't behave like they do in entertainment mm -hmm. in real life. Mm -hmm. They're a lot worse in real life. Uh, which is why when Stephen King has them swearing and smoking, it's like, you know, this has an edge to it. I like this. And I was theorizing, if you remember Robocop 2, mm -hmm. there are kids in there who are horrible. But even the kids who are supposed to be horrible are a little bit kind of cutesified and moppety. Mm -hmm. And all of their clothes are like really... They had that thing in the 90s where all the kids had to be super clean cut and just wear one color T-shirts it was weird. There was this fixation on bright one-color T-shirts that were a bit too big for you. And Bermuda shorts, occasionally with the two big T-shirts tucked into the Bermuda shorts. Mm -hmm. That's a horrific yep. look. And trainers, high tops mm. with neon laces and the tongues hanging out. And, and this is... Acid wash jeans. 
I'm going to talk about this when we talk about Ready Player One, but I think we're ready for 90s nostalgia, which rather than just goes, hey, wasn't it great in the 90s, actually goes, here's actually how it was in the 90s in a way that 90s media never showed you. Mm. I'd appreciate that. Might even have to write it myself. If nothing else, the cycle of nostalgia followed by deconstruction followed by challenging allows us to love, question and to a degree disapprove of eras from our past which is the absolute best medicine for the sickness of fixating on the past as a golden age. Everything was great then so it must be crap now when in reality we're moving forward all the time it's just that there's always shit to deal with but it's always two steps forward gay marriage, better representation in movies, one step back Nazis. When we take the step forward of treating Mexicans like human beings again and pushing back hard on a woman's right to choose, Christ knows what the one step back's going to be. Serial killers now legal, as long as they're white. Trick question, asshole. Serial killers are always white. And male. But back to Stranger Things. There's all of the racism, sexism, homophobia and all of that shit gets called out in this. No one just says, fuck you. Well, that's the thing. It's not just threaded through as this is part of what yeah, life Yeah, it's not casual throwaway. And uh, the bitter bits of the media that we love, the element of thing bad rather than thing bad, mm. you know? And sometimes that element can actually grow to be overwhelming and everyone has their own different well, line. And to some people, the queer bashing in Monsters, uh, Monsters Inc., Monster Squad is like, yeah, nope, nope. This movie does not get my attention. Mm, yeah, and, the, and I completely understand that. The, the point of Stranger Things is you are meant to totally be with these kids. Mm. And if they were just randomly doing shitty 80s stuff, it yeah. might push people away from She, uh, Lindsay compared um, it and Stranger Things and said that uh, Stranger Things is giving us a fun adventure, whereas Derry is deeply unpleasant. But she also compared them to Wolf of Wall Street, where it's like, you know, don't want you want to hang with these kids. The way that it works, Derry's fucking horrible, but those kids are decent, good-hearted kids that you wish you had friends more like mm. when you were younger. And if you had friends, that many friends who were like that, well done. And this will probably make you feel nostalgic for them. Mm. But the few friends you did have who you were that strong and involved with... That's what it makes you think of. And that's the nostalgia factor. And that's the side of you that, obviously, as an adult, it's difficult to maintain those kind of friendships over distance and over time and over various relationships. Yeah. Well, as Chris Rock said, I didn't have six friends mm. in high school. I don't have six friends, friends now. now. Yeah. Some <laughs> of us didn't have seven friends in a loser squad. Um, Whereas Wolf of Wall Street's like, oh, look at these terrible, debaucherous people, but don't you want to be like them? No. No, I fucking don't, is my very square answer to that one. But another thing that uh, um, doesn't tend to happen in Stranger Things all that much is that uh, they get teased for being geeks, but they don't get the shit kicked out of them for being geeks. It's There's no... Like, Stephen King has a psychopath in every school not who's, in, like, targeting kids. Not in two. They do in one. Oh, yeah? Yeah, that scene where the kids... Oh, yeah. She makes him piss himself. Elle makes him piss himself. And then that's the end of that bullying chapter. There's yeah, no more bullying He tries to throw them into that. the quarry. Yeah. Yeah, the psycho kid. Yep. Mm. And then that, that one kid... 
one bad apple and as soon as that kid's pissed himself and has been defeated I guess enter Billy well I think part of the point of two is about bringing your network together yeah. and if bringing that network together achieved nothing and the psychopath kid was still there tormenting them yeah. it would feel like well what the hell was all that for then I think I seem to remember that there was some sympathy for the psycho kid way back uh, when we um, uh, podcasted on it and was like well why doesn't he get to be friends with them mm. later on that might have been a good arc, especially considering that Steve has come so far now mm. from being a complete douche nozzle. However, Steve was never quite that horrible, and there are reasons that I am still not on board with Billy. Oh yeah, no, yeah. Even after the end, even now, Billy is dead, and that's the uh, yeah. the end of Billy's but arc. Billy is the grown up version of that kid. Yeah, it is the uh, uh, the kid who gets abused and decides. I'm going to, whether unconsciously or not, decides to replicate that pattern mm. and sees no problem with that. Yeah. Not even like, I'm conflicted about this. I can see what a horrible person I've become. I want to stop, but it just, this anger's coming from somewhere and I've got to let it out. And also specifically... I don't remember, I don't know if they're, like Draco kind of feels a bit like that. Like I, he never really spoke about it, but there's something of that. As yeah. in he is twisted by his horrible father. In places, but I think for me, it's the distinction between somebody who's been abused and tormented and has all this trauma that's built up in them and they have to get it out somehow, and so they lash out wildly at everybody. That's different from somebody who then turns it specifically on the people in their life who are weaker than them, who takes it out on the people who cannot defend or protect themselves in any way and specifically chooses those people to take it out on. Yeah, and we get a lot of that in this, and there's a lot more Max than I uh, recall, and Max is still one of my absolute favourite characters. Mm. And uh, there's a juxtaposition sometimes scene to scene between uh, this toxic brother-sister relationship between Billy and her and then Jonathan being because back in season two he was a still a really good guy mm. uh, you know being really nurturing to Will when Will is bewildered and frightened and out of step with everyone else he's had the snap mm. done to him it's been only a year of being uh, uh, out of step with everyone else but he didn't get to just not exist mm. he's there for the he's got Trauma. Trauma, yeah. Significant trauma. But the watching two again, and I did say to you that I would have liked to have seen two before we saw three so that I could lead into it, but I actually quite liked seeing it in retrospect. It has made me review my thoughts on some of the things that happen in three Hmm. because now I've been reminded of the, the lines that were started in two that join up. Like, I mean, it's a small example, but the scene with Billy and the mums. Yeah who were all drooling over him. That seemed to come completely out of left field for me. I'd forgotten that there's a scene in 2... Where he turns up at Mike's house. ...openly hits on Karen Wheeler. Yeah, not hits her, just as it like turns up and and, and, like is Tom Cruise in risky business. wildly. Oh, Tom Cruise in risky business is a creep. Anyway, (laughs) to go back to season 3... Again, like I said, we're going to be making cross-references here. Uh, I really appreciate how when the great big beasty thing chases them through the forest and they're like, oh my God, they run back into the cabin and that facilitates an attack from a great big series of practical effects mm. rather than them in the forest being chased being by a thing that's not real. Tentacles, yeah. yeah. And again, there's like we've gone through, through 
years of episodes where we've said I've had to qualify over and over again. It's not that it that a practical effect is real, whereas CG isn't real. But again, it's the thing that's actually there in the room for the actor to act with, which is always, to me, superior than this tennis ball on a stick is really menacing. Mm. It's very rare that we'll get a superior scenario with that going on. There's got to be something. Even if it's just a guy in pyjamas acting for the, the, that thing, mm. you know? Yeah. Do you know what? They, they actually, going back to it, it reminded me of, and I don't know why this hasn't occurred to me before, there's vines, they're plants, the demodogs look like Venus flytraps. Resident Evil? It, no. Uh, Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> this is what happens if Audrey 2 wins. How have we done Watership Down, but, but we haven't done Little, Little Shop of Horrors? Well, I tell you why, commissions. Well. <laughs> <laughs> some, of the, some of these films that we love so much we haven't done because it's difficult to find an angle on something that you just adore. Yeah, that's true. You know? Yeah. It, it, when almost the entirety of my review is just going to consist of, well, I saw this when I was seven. Okay. And I've loved it ever since. I got a great angle watching the director's cut of Big with mm. Tom Hanks. So that's worth coming back to definitely this year. That was one of the ones that I earmarked as we should definitely come back to. Okay. Yeah. How much longer is the campaign? Just forget it, Mike. No, you want to keep playing, right? Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. We'll just call the girls afterwards. I said forget it, Mike, okay? I'm going no. home. But come on, Will. Move! Will, come on. You can't leave, it's raining. Listen, I said I was sorry, all right? It's a cool campaign. It's really cool. We're just not in the mood right now. Yeah, Mike, that's the problem. You guys are never in the mood anymore. You're ruining our party. That's not true. Really? Where's Dustin right now? See? You don't know, and you don't even care, and obviously he doesn't either, and I don't blame him. You're destroying everything, and for what? So you could swap spit with some stupid girl? Elle's not stupid. It's not my fault you don't like girls. I'm not trying to be a jerk, okay? But we're not kids anymore. I mean, what did you think, really? That we were never gonna get girlfriends? That we are just gonna sit in my basement all day and play games for the rest of our lives? Yeah. Yes, I did. I really did. Will. Will! Will, come on! The scene has been interpreted as uh, Will being gay, uh, and whether intentionally or not, that is a reading. Similarly, he could be asexual or aromantic. What's clear, though, is that he's still rooted in how things were just before the beginning of season one, and kind of wants to go back to that measure of childhood innocence, completely understandably. But it's hard to go back to fighting pretend dragons when you fought real ones. Just like it's hard to go back to childish things that you previously put away when you're growing up. Some great parallels going on. Will is out of step. It's always seemed to me that in the same way that Haral has got so much shit she's been dealing with in Tiger's Eye yeah. that she pretty much like doesn't have time and space in her life for romantic relationships. Mm. It feels like Will's always been that to me. He's been through so much shit. He just doesn't have that time which sucks because it also means he hasn't really set aside time for companionship and now that Mike's ended up manacled to 11 mm. that his closest companion for years is now 
migrated. Which is exemplified in the exchange between uh, he and Mike when they're trying to get the mind flayer out of him. Yeah. And he's talking about how they met. I do love that scene. We can talk about that now if you want. The, uh, it's, uh, it's near the end of season two. They're trying to effectively exorcise mm. or bio-exercise. Um, they need Beetlejuice for that. Mm. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the thing that's inside Will out of him. And to do that, they start off trying to connect with Will in this this really lovely emotional scene of Joyce and it, it kind of felt uh, uh, weird like um, Winona Ryder sitting down next to him and saying listen kid I've been a spy for Dracula so I know, I, I know what you're going through um, but it starts off as a really emotional scene and then becomes kind of a, like a, a sci-fi heist mm. to try to get Will out of there like they weren't trying to game him but then it ends up being like that so it's it's weirdly both authentic and clever the way that they uh, they handle that well initially they're just trying to identify if Will is still there mm. and then once they do it becomes about right what can we do to force this thing out of him it's quite chilling when she says you know what, what's my name and he he stares at her for ages and then says you're a mom and Again, the actor playing Will, Noah Schnapp, does a really fantastic job of not just doing scary monster face and being demonic. He actually seems bewildered and maybe not so good at the con, but trying not to give himself away. And he doesn't do the shifty eyes thing, which is so we've seen done a bajillion times. So there's always that sense of uncertainty there. Well, part of it, and I this was something that actually I quite liked that they hinted more at in three and I say hinted they may not have intended this at all I could be pulling this out of thin air but it feels like the the fact that the mind flayer has to be in someone else's flesh in order to manifest um, in the real world until he gets particularly powerful he is then affected by whoever it is he's in so when he's living in a scared preteen boy who's very confused about what's going on and very frightened there almost seems to be a little bit of feedback going on there that they're they're affecting each other in terms of how they then react to stuff a couple of other things we didn't mention from season three carrie elwes how do we get through the whole thing without mentioning the prick mayor we didn't he just felt like the mayor in jaws Mm. And he's looking pretty good for his age as well. Like it, it seems shallow to go, eh, Carrie Owens is in this. He looks good. He's just greyed and uh, he's a smarmy git. It's, it's weird that we never really saw Carrie Elwes return to being totally, you know, a, a, a good guy like Wesley. Mm. He's always played like a, a little bit of a, 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 a cad I think since then. In part, his Britishness counts against him in The mm-hmm. Hollywood Machine yeah. for that sort of character but the other thing is as well how could you ever recapture the pure goodness that is Wesley yeah season two obviously a big chunk of this is uh Hopper trying to do the dad thing with L and if you go like after the shambolic and chaotic version of this in season three if you go back to the earnest trying his best like clashing with each other of two it's a it's a complete tone shift, mm. and again, like I, I I found myself really liking season two as a result of this because it's the stuff that I I, I love to see people trying their best and kind of failing mm. at it. Yeah, 
That's a very human thing to to go wrong. Whereas in three, it almost seems like he's willfully, as I said last week, he's he's willfully not trying. He's just frustrated and allowing his frustrations to rule his actions. Mm. But also the proposition laid down in both seasons of how the hell you discipline a superpowered child that actually kind of terrifies you. It's never really solved. The The only real way to get through is, is to not try to be a hard ass with her and just try to reach out, which is honestly good advice for dads. Mm. Yeah. Like trying to be a hard ass doesn't ultimately yield the best results. No. And the whole taking the uh, boyfriend to task and you don't get to date my daughter unless I say it's okay. Yeah. I can't really see that washing too much these days. We got a good kid with Lyra, and I honestly can't remember many times at all that I'm like, yeah, I'm really glad I was a hard ass at that time. I'm, I, I, I am so happy and proud that I shouted at her and lost my temper and made it so clear that I was losing control. Mm. Uh, aside from uh, Will being very much out of place in uh, the whole of uh, season two, um, we also get Dustin in his gross lizard thing. Mm. That, right, you've got Dart. the parallel there. Which is kind of nice between Hopper trying to nurture Elle Mm -hmm. and Dustin trying to nurture this slug thing. And it keeps shedding its skin and so does she and changing into new versions of itself and so does she. Yeah, but it becomes more gross and dangerous and she becomes more magnificent, I suppose. I I didn't say it was an exact parallel. (laughs) But they echo each other. There there is, however, a point, uh, definitely with Dart, but not really with Elle, where where it's like, you got to kill this thing. Mm, Yeah, but he never does. No? He never does. We never really see what happens to Dart. He just gives him a candy bar. He gives him some candy bars, and then they sneak past and disappear. Dart makes the choice not to chase after them. Which is another string to the bow of kindness and love as opposed to being a hard ass yeah absolutely but then presumably when the all the stuff gets burned and uh the mind flare gets pushed back into the upside down the dark gets destroyed anyway it kind of doesn't matter though because ultimately the kindness won out in the end absolutely and dark didn't have the uh nous to realize he was effectively letting them go forever and and sacrificing his duty to protect the mind flare Mm. for a candy bar Although I kind of feel like he did know and he was On some level, yeah. Because he was his friend. But yeah. yeah, it's not as if they were like, give him chocolate so we can distract him and then Steve can hit him with the bat. Yeah. Again, there's such a good heart to this show. Um, there's a, a bit in... <laughs> Where uh, Billy is driving around to push it to the limit. Limit! Walking on the razor's edge. Which was in Scarface, but it was also in Grand Theft Auto 3, released in 2002. When the Duffer Brothers, born in 1984, were 17. This makes people of a certain age, specifically a lot of guys, nostalgic... Not for the 80s, but for when they were nostalgic for the 80s in 2002. A lot of whom might not even remember the 80s because they were insensible and like a child at the time. Mm. Or maybe not even born. And this, like that moment, is kind of Stranger Things in a nutshell. Mm. It's 
A couple of guys raised on some of the best movies of the 80s that gave them a very distinct impression of the 80s that they weren't there to experience. They've got their nostalgia buttons to push and some of them have a weird anchor point mm. that actually isn't to the 80s at all. It's to another nostalgia point. It's to point. a replication of the 80s, yeah. Which, again, I don't, I don't actually think it's a bad thing, but it is different to, say, Ernest Cline's weaponized nostalgia in uh, uh, Ready Player One. And we'll talk about that in Ready Player One. But that, that coming out at the same time-ish as Stranger Things and It means we've kind of reached peak 80s and we've got two great and one bad example of how this can be used. It uses its nostalgia as set dressing, window dressing, to evoke a very specific time. Stranger Things is more of a meta Easter egg hunt, threaded through a really pretty strong ensemble cast story. And Ready Player One uses niche appeal trivia as status symbols. We are gearing up for that show. And coming up hot on the heels, we've uh, got the incredibly unsuccessful Power Rangers movie, uh, which was... um, pitched to people in the visual style of Zack Snyder's Man of Steel movies in the trailer. And actually, the heart of that is a lot closer to Stranger Things than a lot of people are comfortable with. If Mm. you think about Power Rangers, it's pretty Stranger Things. Mm. Yeah, although it's a different time period, and maybe this is just me because this is the era that I became aware of the Power Rangers. I am acutely aware of the fact that they've actually been going for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. Um, But they are very 90s to me. That's the point I was getting to. Bob said this. There is something very specific and special or specialised about the 80s in that it was a period when things ended. Okay. Star Wars effectively ran for only six years, 77 to 83, and ended in the 80s. Back to the Future began in 85, ended in 90. And Back to the Future has never come back. And that is both good and bad but it has afforded Back to the Future a very set identity. Ghostbusters was slightly different in that there was the cartoon, but nobody remembers extreme Ghostbusters, and it wasn't until 2016 that they attempted a serious comeback, and we all know how that turned out. We'll see what happens in the future, but there was a long-ass gap. Gremlins, very successful single film in the 80s. Brief attempted a comeback in 1990 with Gremlins 2, which failed. He-Man... While there have been multiple resurgences, it's never had that ubiquity of that first cartoon release. Thundercats, likewise. Uh, Transformers. When Optimus Prime died, that was the end of innocence for a lot of kids. And although Transformers has definitely continued and continued and continued, Generation 1 had a very definite end point in the 80s. Um, Cassette tapes, they have never come back. Vinyl has but not cassette tapes. VHS has never come back. Because it's shit. DVD has persisted, but not VHS. Because it's shit is a really good way of of pointing to a lot of the things from the 80s, like garbage bail kids, that never came back, and that's for a good goddamn reason. The 90s was a period where things continued. Power Rangers started as a live-action TV series and just didn't stop. The other massive thing of the 90s, Bob pointed this one out, Pokemon started as an animated show and just didn't 
stop. Star Wars restarted in the 90s, and honestly, because of Clone Wars keeping it going, just hasn't stopped. Jurassic Park started in the 90s, again a bit more in the 90s, finished in 2000. So technically we could say that Jurassic Park did end, but then when it came back with Jurassic World, it's like these movies do insane business now. Mm. Not like they Ghostbusters 2016. They make a billion dollars each. Uh, Mission Impossible started in 1996 and just hasn't stopped. It's gone to sleep for a few years, but it's still effectively the same series going and going and going. CDs, the format of the 90s, are still available in record stores. They're the format, with the, the last format really, Minidiscs tried and then failed, where you can hard copy get things into people's hands. Vinyl has since had a resurgence while CDs were still in circulation, but not cassette tapes. DVDs, shit though they are now, are still on sale, even though they're outmoded and things look crap on them. Mm. The 80s is also a period where creators got to relive their childhood from the 50s. So they were making stuff which remembered the 50s in the 80s. And now we get the same thing 40, 30, 40 years on. But what Bob meant was effectively the 90s didn't stop, but the 80s did. So there's this weird fascination with this closed off kind of world of where where our histories had to be said goodbye to and melancholy we put away childish things whereas from 90s onwards we didn't really have to put away childish things because they were still popular yeah and i'll tell you why not everything obviously erie indiana only got one season it's what that period of the 80s represents in terms of reaganomics uh no, no no it's not reaganomics the 80s is a very definite closing the door on an old world and opening the door on a new one. The 80s was the advent of the home computer and that was the start of the communications revolution. Mm-hmm. Well, start of. Obviously, like, trickle-through things had begun in the seven, late 70s. Well, in the 80s, we were apparently all on ham radio. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, but the, the computer is the... Th- the symbol of what the world has now become. And we see home computers really as, as kind of an outdated thing now. It's it's much more common these days for people not to have a desktop PC at all. No, just a phone. To have a phone, or at the most a phone and a tablet, or maybe a phone and a laptop if they have office work to do. Yeah. Um, but that was the the start of that communications revolution and the 90s was very same as it ever was and again this is something that I've I know I'm quite sensitive to but televised war which then gave us the sense that wars never stopped they just moved and that would tie in with what you're saying about all of this media that suddenly became What's the word when it's everywhere? Ubiquitous. Yeah, ubiquitous. It was, as you say, it didn't stop. It carried on. It or was all over the place. You yeah, you could you could see it everywhere you went. People could now pass it around to friends who'd never heard of it. You didn't have to like copy comics down longhand anymore to give them to people. You copied comics longhand. Yes. <laughs> um. And yeah, so that was something that shifted irrevocably. Yeah. 
you couldn't be cut off from the world anymore. Or at least it was suddenly so much harder. You had to do it consciously and with lots and lots of effort if that was something that you really wanted to do. Mm. Another thing is when you're making entertainment, especially uh, things with uh, beasties and scares and things, you've now got to come up with really good reasons why people don't have access to their smartphones. If it's set now, if it's set now, it's like, oh... We, we're going on a, uh, a trip to Midsummer. I can't get any reception here in Midsummer. Hope there are no murders. Uh, but yeah, if you said it in the 80s, no problem at all. If you said it in the 1880s, no problem at all. <laughs> Damn, they're on to me. <laughs> um, but this, and, and also, and just bringing it back in again momentarily, and the fact that that whole story in a way is about nostalgia, one of the fundamental things that Pennywise laments is that children's fears are simple. You show them a scary face, an image of a monster that freaks them out, and you've got all the fear juice you want. Adults are more complicated. It is harder to make them afraid because it's harder for them to tap into their own fears. Save it for the itcher. It's coming, folks. I know. But, But this uses the same thing. And one of the things that became... Very apparent re-watching season two, and it's there throughout the whole arc. Um, but I will honestly say that I, I've seen a lot of people saying that they wish season two hadn't been, that they love one, they think three is a great continuation, but two they, they weren't happy with. Two is my favourite. Really? Yeah. Wow. Why? Because... Okay. One big reason is because this overarching theme that I'm talking about right now is made most apparent in two. It's the theme of generational tasks, if you like. What the role of each generation is in continuing the human race, the community, whatever grouping you want to give it. The adults are there to protect the children and get out of their way when necessary and clear their path when they need that to enable them to do the thing that will carry them all forwards. And the teenagers are kind of a... They're in a transitional period where sometimes they're in the young group and sometimes they're in the older group. And it's in, for them, it's almost about coming to terms with that shift in roles. Mm. And the way that's presented in two, I think, is the best the strongest example. The strongest example of that. Um, uh, for nothing other oh, reason than uh, Steve steps up and stops being a dickhole and actually starts protecting these kids with his baseball bat, mm. which was when I first started really going, you know what, Steve's a good guy. Yeah. And Max, Billy's punching the shit out of Steve, and Max sticks a goddamn syringe full of tranquilizer in his neck mm. and then tells him to back the fuck off her friends and doesn't beat the shit out of him with the nail bat that she's got. But, you know... <laughs> shows strength and indicates to him she's not going to do what he does, which is to take out his aggression on those weaker than her. Absolutely. Which at the time, he is. Yeah, and at that point, Steve is effectively fulfilling the role of Tank. He absorbs the the guts of the damage so that Max can then step forward Mm. and do the thing that she needs to do. Once more, this is the nurturing and love over being a hard ass. Exactly. 
Or if you like the often rejected clarion call of our age, that's how we're going to win. Not fighting what we hate, saving what we love. And as it turns out, Max still loves Billy, after all that shit. Though she is unable to save him. Now, the reason that I prefer the way that it's it's demonstrated in 2 to the way that it is in 3 is because one of the things that felt slightly unsatisfying for me about 3 was that they divide them up into groups and they have them all doing their own thing, which they do in 2, but in 2 they are very specifically all working towards a single goal. They all have a piece to do, but it's part and parcel of the same thing. They are beating up the demodogs, or they are burning off vines, or they are trying to extract Mind Flayer from Will. And it's all... And L is off trying to close the gate. It's all part and parcel of the same thing. In three, they all have their individual tasks to do, but there's less of a coherent sense of this is all coming together to the same end. They're all doing important stuff, but they could be important stuff in completely separate stories. It doesn't have that sense of cohesion, which I really, really appreciated about too. I will need to see one again, which I think after seeing three, Lyra's going to want to watch anyway, mm. uh, just to assess. Because, again, I had forgotten all of the strengths of two uh, and just uh, had one in my head as being uh, extremely clear and pure. But there is an aliens parallel it's just that season one was not cold and barren the way that alien is speaking of aliens parallels one of the things this show does and i think i mentioned it last time that is occasionally to its detriment is ah ah when the demodogs start attacking the hospital and it's going and it's like ah that bit from aliens ah it's hard to establish tension when you're actually asking the audience to go you can't go fnook and be tense at the same time. True. I mean, you can. But it's tough. Especially the second time around you watch it. You're just like, oh, God. Okay. So aliens. And you're just thinking about poor Bob mm. the whole time. And I was, uh, this time I was watching it. And like I said last time, you know, you've been raising him like a pig for slaughter. They invented this new character just to give Joyce a an out from this lonely, sad life she's got. Uh, Not necessarily to leave that life behind, but to make her life better by being with this guy who's clearly deeply missed in three. They just don't really... There's just a couple of references to it, and Joyce is sadder Mm. as a result. But But they created him so they wouldn't have to kill someone that we already love. And I feel like the end of three as well, with, with what they did with Hopper, they don't really want to commit to killing people. And I understand that because I'm now looking at characters in my stories for phase two. And I've got the ones that are are definitely not going to last all the way through to the end picked out. And I'm looking at other ones and thinking, at this point, your life is in the balance. Mm. Like I know that these characters are definitely going to survive all the way through to the end. But these characters here there is merit to them having an arc which culminates in or is interrupted by their death. Mm, And killing characters can make a story really strong and really hit home. It's not the only thing you can do, however. And Marvel movies have managed to really get some emotional beats out of not necessarily killing characters, but taking something away from them. Mm, Yeah. I do. I get what you mean about 
Bob and the, the fact that he's there effectively to be sacrificed. But I do think the way they develop him as a character has weight and is more detailed and in-depth than you would normally expect that kind of character to get. One of the things that I really like about how he grows on you is that he starts off feeling like, well, yeah, he's just a warm body for Joyce to have because she's alone. And um, it the, the switch comes when he comes in and they get him to look at the map and mm-hmm. the, the vine pictures all over the place. In fact, they don't know it's a map at that point. He's the one who clicks that it's a map. That's when it becomes apparent that he has a set of unique skills that nobody else can bring to this particular problem, which now makes him a fundamental part of the team. So it does feel like a real loss when you lose him, even though he's new and hadn't really bedded in quite as much as everybody else. Yeah. He was definitely growing and going somewhere. I write with characters organically, so I don't decide these two are definitely going to end up together, so I'm going to just pave out their relationship and then I will force that thing to happen even if it doesn't actually feel right. Mm -hmm. I leave, uh, usually when I'm sort of bringing people together like that, I'll leave elements of, well, maybe it won't go right Mm -hmm. and just see what happens. Same with certain characters who have died already who I realize, oh, this actually is a good time to to throw people off. And at the same time, it is a natural crisis point for the characters to face. And also, the actions that lead to this character's death would be actions this character would make, which would logically result in their death. Yeah. I have to acknowledge that as I'm going through. I wrote a specific character death last December, which I've been planning since 2013, so I've known all this time. It still hit me like a freight train. I remember William Golding said this about uh, when he killed Wesley in The Princess Bride, played, as it happens, by Carrie Elwes, who features in Stranger Things 3. And he knew this character was coming back. It still destroyed him. And it's been seven or eight months since I wrote that. And all the time up to the point when I wrote it, I was thinking, I can change this, I can stop this, I can keep this character alive. Is it right that they die? And then I wrote it, it destroyed me, and it was perfect. And I've been tormented since then, thinking, I can change this. I still don't have to make this the case. I have control over this world. But it felt unnatural to change that. It cheapened the sacrifice to imagine that it could just be miraculously averted. And only now do I really get to share that with people who are finding out that part of the story. So I suppose it is reductive of me to imagine that the Duffer brothers haphazardly kill people with the stroke of a pen. I'm sure it's different for some authors. While Bob could have survived that horrible situation, what he achieves beforehand cements how important it is to be brave Mm. in this world where there's horrible, scary-ass shapes in the darkness trying to eat you all the time. His courage actually gets them the out they need. He does the 
technical side of things to to, to get them the exit. Mm. Well, he does the ultimate adult laying themselves down so that the kids can get out. Bingo. Carly? How'd you find us? Who else knows you're here? No one. So what then? Poof, you just show up like magic with that picture? I stay calm. She's just a kid. A, a kid who could get us all killed. I have to ask you again, Shirley. You're going to start losing things, starting with those pretty little locks of yours, yeah? Come on, Axe, put down the knife. How did you find us? I saw her. Ah, that's not an answer. Just... You're a terrible dancer, Axel. I told you, stay out of my head. So we're threatening little girls now, are we? She knows about you. She had this. Your mother gave this to you? In her dream circle. <laughs> dream circle? I think she's a schizo or something. Says she's looking for her sister. Yeah, like I said, schizo. Jeez. There is a diversion episode of this. A whole episode where they get the whole thing done in one go. And that's Elle's trip to the city where she meets these vagabonds. I'm guessing it's Indianapolis. Maybe so. And this has proved problematic with uh, uh, some people. And I can see why watching it a a second time. It doesn't really go anywhere. It's there just to give Elle, uh, this is what you could be doing with your time. And these are bad kids. And this is a bad route to be taking. This is the route of anger. There's a parallel with Eight's... Carly's methods of teaching Elle to harness her power with Charles in first class trying to teach Eric. Whereas Charles says there's a point between rage and serenity and... It's a very beautiful memory, Eric. Thank you. I didn't know I still had that. There's so much more to you than you know. Not just pain and anger. It's good, too. I felt it. When you can access all that, You'll possess a power no one can match. Not even me. So come on. Try again. God, remember when X-Men was briefly good? So while Charles's focus is getting Eric to embrace a gamut of emotions, Eight's focus is just get angry. Just uh, fill yourself with rage and let that explode out of you. Yeah. Kind of like a, a super-focused carry. Mm, yeah. Which is, there's obviously a lot of echoes of there. Yeah. I know people mention Firestarter in terms of influence, but watched, Carrie is definitely there as well. I uh, watched Firestarter with Lyra the other day, and we were like, whoa, there is so much of this in Stranger Things. Yeah. And a lot of this in X-Men as well. If you haven't seen Firestarter, track that one down. Yeah. Well, the, F- Firestarter was written in the 70s as yeah. well. Yeah, Okay. And it's, it's been, like, hugely influential. And barely anyone that I know really talks about it. Mm, yeah. Because the film is bad. Like, really bad. It's a bad version of Stranger Things. Yeah. But the, or the a whole, bad X-Men you know, film. this is an offshoot of the CIA. They're doing terrible experiments on people. And it, it taps into... Honestly, as they, as they journey around and, and uh, fall upon the kindness of strangers in farmhouses, there was a big, big Logan vibe to mm. that. Logan is yeah. Firestarter done right. Yeah. It's playing on the Vietnam paranoia, the theories about them testing drugs on soldiers and how that's going to manifest itself in the next generation. So from a psychological perspective, it's kind of looking at what are you, the state, doing to the people of your country? Um, but the the fact that Carly encourages 
Elle to use her anger as a fuel source, the moment at the end where she's closing the gate, she doesn't have the strength to do it to begin with. Mm-hmm. And she starts, she flashes back to Carly and her training methods and she starts to visualise Papa hurting her and having the guards drag her away. Matthew Bodine. In order to build up the fuel that she needs to get this job done. And for a brief moment, I thought, do you know what? It would have been nice to see her find a different source for it, to find the place of of serenity that she can use instead. But on reflection, it actually is more connected then to how it plays out in three. Like I said to you before, the reason that her powers seem to have been mostly gone is because she is loved she's nurtured she's in a safe place she doesn't need that anger as fuel anymore at least not in the early episodes so that is consistent and i actually like that angle better i was afraid hopper's death was going to lead l right back to the path of being angry like x-men apocalypse you know my dead family instant anger recharge so she'd destroy the mind flare with no on finding that out. But they actually went a very different way in that she doesn't have to destroy it. He does it for her and she ends up depowered because effectively the connection to the upside down has been severed. And while the day is saved by Hopper remotely protecting everyone, Billy, briefly put back in touch with his inner child by L, is overcome with remorse enough for a brief fit of maturity because his boundless anger is briefly neutralised by a powerful melancholy and he takes up his role as the older brother protector just for that one crucial moment. So again, it's that same measure of sacrifice to save the day from a nurturing adult. And although there's a weird kind of this man is not suitable to be a protector Uh, for Bob in Stranger Things 2 when he's constantly juxtaposed with Hopper who's had Vietnam training and is a peace officer, is a position of authority, is very physically imposing relative to Bob. You know, knows how to handle a firearm and doesn't get killed and is a suitable protector. Hopper then lays down his life again one season later. It's the same duty, kind of regardless of whether Hopper comes back, which he will. And Hopper was beginning to make real progress in 3. He spent at least the first season very closed off, unable to really express himself. And when it happened, it was like a little explosion of righteous anger. But him being all over the place, in retrospect, him going out on a date with Joyce and her not turning up, and then he explodes at her. It's all the stuff that's been gumming up inside. And when you start opening up, the first stuff that's going to come out is going to be pretty horrible. When you start therapy, it gets worse before it gets better. But actually, pound for pound, he did a pretty good job with L. He established a structure that the rest of the kids couldn't. He laid down enough rules and gave her enough growth to get from being pretty much a feral child to a girl who can blend in with society by the end, even if she is very different on the inside. And yes, she's wearing his shirt. And yes, his daughter's hairband is around her wrist.
the guns Shout above our heads And we kiss As though nothing could fall If there's a shift in style between two and three that is the reason why two is my favorite it's because of and we said this before when we were talking about three two is a character driven plot mm-hmm. and three is plot driven character it's not terrible in terms of sorry that sounded bad what i mean is it's not it's not a sudden terrible drop off. Yeah, exactly. It's it's well done plot driven character, which is entirely possible to do. I've seen badly plot driven character before. It's awful, um, but it's a definite change in how they do things in two to how they do things in three. It's a tilt for, uh, towards comedy and away from drama. Mm. The drama's still there and it's still great, but I'd forgotten how poignant and sharp the drama was in two and so i might actually be in the same boat as you got to see one again but one had a great craft to it as well it was very well organized to take you through a smaller story that was very Mm -hmm. self-contained two again they had the benefit of let's develop these characters they knew who they were from the Mm get-go so they had that it's the second series thing of knowing what they're doing absolutely but this is why back to the future two is my favorite Mm -hmm. and i will stand by that uh, the Runaways, though, again, they're held back by the fact that their dialogue is poorly written and their delivery is poor. Mm. So you've got these stereotypes with awful hair. Everyone's got a terrible haircut going, yeah, we's bad guys. Who's this gal? And <laughs> They feel like X-Force. Kind of, yeah. A little bit. It's kind of like a child wrote Bad Street Kids, based mostly on watching the music video for Beat It. Hey, Fazellas. <laughs> Looks like you guys are up to no good. Well, this gang used to be like that two, three, four. So you think you're tough? Well, we hate rapping. But don't bust the captain, because here's what's happening. We're breaking out some old-fashioned tap-in. Hey, but the Chris says you get down. Oh, I'm shot. We miscalculated. Retreat. Uh, and they don't smack of authenticity, and it doesn't empathize with them mm-hmm. it doesn't say these kids were messed up and messed around there's various things that brought them down these roads yeah. it's not written from a place of authenticity or empathy mm-hmm. and that again cuts it off from the key strengths of this series yeah. where almost everyone who behaves in an off way there's a trail back on that yeah but it leads to my my favourite moment of the uh, the three series arc so far, which is. Um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but I have to go back. My friends, my friends are in danger. This isn't time for a talk. We gotta go right now. Your mother sent you here for a reason. Remember, we belong together. 
There's nothing for you back there. They cannot save you, Jane. No. But I can save them. Coupled with her last-minute appearance at the end of the penultimate episode of season two, when everybody but Hopper thought she was completely gone. That's a moment. Uh, Millie Bobby Brown, again, is a phenomenal actress. She really is. She's so good. So good. And very well suited to this show because she elevates things. Mm, Yeah. And Elle is such a fantastic mix of characteristics. You know, she's shell-shocked and innocent, but she grows more savvy while still maintaining a natural sense of alienation from everyone. A lesser actor would have serious trouble making all of this cohesive. She's got these great big wide eyes which draw you in, especially if you're a kid, you feel compelled to back her. But she can also be really quite scary. She's effectively what Chris Claremont was trying to do with Phoenix and what everyone else has failed to do with Phoenix. I don't think anyone's really got the time to develop a character like this around Jean Grey. And I'm just going to end on a mention of X-Men Apocalypse. Remember that show I did where I talked all about the uh, songs that weren't in X-Men Apocalypse Mm -hmm. and weren't in Dark Phoenix either? Looking back, it's, it's like you had the ability, the opportunity, the, the call and the need from everyone who would have watched that film to evoke the 80s in a fun, sharp, giddy, campy, maybe even challenging and acerbic way. And they never took that opportunity. They barely took it in uh, X-Men Apocalypse. They definitely don't take it in Dark Phoenix. And there are obviously various meddling situations with Dark Phoenix that prevented it from being a thing that was uh, bigger. There's um, uh, talk of that there was going to be a full-scale alien invasion at the end, and the, um, what were they called? The Dabari all turn up, and Phoenix is the one that stands in front of them, and she sort of does this, boom, and like, this is my planet, leave. And Marvel went, we'll have that then, cheers. And uh, the the angle of uh, the video that I was watching was like, see, this is why Disney ruins everything. And it's like, no, they just did a better version of that film that they were always going to do. Mm. And they just prevented this clumsy, less focused, less dedicated production team from basically copying them. But like I said, it's from a franchise that could have very easily have uh, played upon our nostalgia in a much more active way. And because they're snoozing and asleep at the wheel, Stranger Things is picking up the slack. Triply so for season three. And I feel like it's only going to get more so. I feel like season four is probably going to end up more like season three than either of the first two. Like they'll just continue to goof around and there'll be sad stuff, but they seem to be having so much fun doing what they're doing. So I guess we'll see. And this prediction may date horribly, but I also feel like season four will be the season of cameos. Where they'll get in, you know, your Christopher Lloyd, Zach Gilligan, Robert Englund, Corey Feldman, Matthew Broderick, Carl Weathers, maybe even Sigourney Weaver. For little cameos as tertiary characters. Something like that. Much like Carrie Elworth, there'll be characters that make us go, oh, just in greater abundance. 80 stars like Molly Ringwald will be sitting watching the phone going, any minute now, Stranger Things will give me a call. Oh, one last thing. I thought the Soviets were building a fast portal from Russia to the heartland of America. 
you remember at the very beginning of season three, they like there's like the oh we're pushing through the fabric of our world into the thing, and then he goes up back above ground and he's in Soviet Russia. So then when you get down to the bunker at the end, uh, well the, in the middle when the scoop troop get down there, you're like oh so it's down there. Oh, I get it. And I, I sort of nudged Sharon and said, they're going to punch through on this end. And effectively, it's like you can sneak your Soviet forces in the back way. Through the upside red, down. Red Dawn style. Yeah. And I thought, that's great. And then they didn't follow up on that. And it's like, it's still there to be inferred. How do you think the American got into their... Yeah, I mean that, that 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 seems like that's actually what it was. It's yeah. it's going to be a fairly shortish tunnel to go from um, Indiana to uh, Severodvinsk. Mm. Which then makes me wonder: Is season four going to be in its entirety an attempted Russian invasion? where the soldiers are all being pushed through the upside down uh-huh. and steadily eaten one at a time before they manage to get to the other side. How many rather would you, you than do me, Tobrish. Before you went, this isn't working. We've got to make this tunnel safe. There's too many demon dogs. Ah, too much regulation. Let's get Reagan on that tunnel. So, yeah, I mean, it would appear that that actually is the case, but... You have to infer it from clues rather than anybody discovering it. Mm. Which is one of the things that I like about the way the Duffer Brothers do things, to yeah. be honest. They, they are good at that whole, we will lay down things in a subtle background pattern. And, you know, there is no... It's, it's kind of with the intention of if they see it, they see it. If they don't, they don't. But what they mean is, oh, you're gonna. <laughs> see, when I hear subtle, I don't think Stranger Things. No, I think, okay. this is our Terminator. Bum, 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 bum. Okay, all right, maybe subtle is not the word, but I've said this before about Marvel. It's it's about background detail that builds the world and makes it three-dimensional. You don't necessarily see the detail specifically. No one stands there going, Ah. pointing at it. But you can't not be aware that it's there. Now, because these shows were originally Patreon exclusive, we have put up there as well an extra 15 minutes of Spider-Man Far From Home sequel speculation. And we have two upcoming quick reviews for movies you probably never would have expected us to cover. Don't Look Now and The Crow. And that is for our $5 patrons for the next few weeks. Even when I'm robbed of my ability to hear properly and my arm goes berserk, I just want to always make sure our listeners are happy with a lot of quality new content. And our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, John Clayson, Tyler Long, Adam Kilmartin, Joe Kasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finn Barnicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron LeCluze, Kieran Dachler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Next week, Food Fight.
So that's it for Stranger Things. We will be back with season four, probably season five, six, seven. We'll see. Uh, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. So let's finish on some Madonna because this bit was delightful.
You were a real asshole, you know that? Yeah, I know. But it didn't even matter. It didn't matter that you were an ass. I was still obsessed with you. Even though all of us losers pretend to be above it all, we still just want to be popular. Accepted. Normal. If it makes you feel any better, having those things isn't all that great. Seriously. It just baffles me. Everything that people tell you is important. Everything that people say you should care about, it's all just... Uh... I told you stop drinking. Bullshit. No, it's not bullshit. Okay? Bullshit. No, it's not bullshit, man. You're bullshit. What? Bullshit. But I guess you gotta mess up to figure things out, right? I hope so. I feel like my whole life has been one big error. <laughs> yep. <laughs> At least it can't get any more messed up than this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wish I had known you in clicks class. Yeah? Really, I do. Maybe you could help me pass the class. Maybe instead of being here, I'd be on my way to college right now. And I would have no idea that there were evil Russians beneath our feet. <laughs>